the history of humanity is littered with hundreds of cultures that have risen and thrived for a season and then just choked on themselves. They either faded away to nothing or they've been reduced to a single small tribe. Somewhere near 20 cultures have grown to the point of regional dominance. They lasted centuries before being replaced by the next big thing. Three that we all know of that are biblical are Egypt, Babylon, and Persia. And then the entire New Testament is set against the backdrop of the biggest empire of its day, the Roman Empire, which stretched all the way up into Europe, down throughout northern Africa, the entire Mediterranean Sea Basin, all the way over to, uh, on the east, Western Asia. It was huge, and it was humongous. And now, since World War I, roughly, the early, early 20th century, there has been the British Empire, the United States, the Soviet Union, and now China. Now, those who honestly study history and human nature discover that no man-made government or system of laws is able to, has the power to overcome the basic selfishness and pride that is in our human hearts. No one wants to be told, oh, you know, as we get closer to Christ, we might open up to this a bit, but no one really wants to be told what to do, either by another human being and even by God. I had a cousin who lived next door to me, and he always said, you're not the boss of me. That's human nature, people. Now, in the middle of all of this, and against this larger backdrop of history and human nature, I've given you, there was a small nation descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Israel that... Um, actually dominated the Middle East for a period of about 80 years, from 1000 BC to 920 BC. And they were ruled by two kings that God had chosen. Okay, Now, um, the extent of this land went all the way north up to the Euphrates River, south down to Egypt, and uh, east to the desert, and, and then there was just nowhere to go. Now, its size was about the size of the state of Illinois, our 25th largest state. So it did not occupy a lot of physical territory. Now, some 500 years later, King Artaxerxes, who was the king not only of Persia, but many, many other nations, uh, and he came pretty late, somewhere around the 400s, he searched his archives and he found out 
that indeed powerful kings had ruled in Jerusalem. You can read it in Ezra. However, even people chosen by the covenant God soon turned away from him and went the way their twisted hearts led them. Now, some 200 years after Solomon, Yahweh called Isaiah to preach prophetically to his people about to be conquered and scattered forever. While Isaiah was finishing his ministry, the 10 tribes of the north were conquered and scattered, and there's no trace left of them to this day. That happened in 722 BC. Now, all prophecy is poetry. And the Holy Spirit inspired Isaiah to use 20 distinct synonyms for depravity, evil, and turning away from God. Now, they're all in your outline. And if anybody really wants to know what the 20 are and a list of them, see me or contact me somehow and and I'll give you the list. But what we're going to really do here is go through and see how line by line Yahweh tells of his power to save his people in spite of their grave transgressions. And when we get to it, that's the worst of all sins and the strongest word in scripture. So now let's go through Isaiah and and I'll read portions and then explain them and, and develop them further. But the first part, which ends halfway through verse 15, is look, Yahweh can save, but his people are excessively evil. And while they hope for salvation, they speak revolt. In the beginning of this first part, we're told Yahweh can save, but his people are full of 15 kinds of crooked, violence, evil, destruction. So this first verse, um, again, I don't know what kind of preaching you heard before you came here, but whether it be on the radio or in churches, I think every Christian's heard this verse a dozen times at least. Behold, Yahweh's hand is not short from causing to save, nor his ear become dull to hear. This is a strong declaration. Yahweh emphatically says he can, he's able to save and to hear his people. But he puts this negatively because his people are acting like He's too weak to save, and he doesn't care to hear them. Nothing could be further than the truth. In fact, the very next portion says, your iniquities have caused uh, a separation between you and your God, and your sins have caused him to hide his face from hearing you. He's turned away. He's chosen not to hear you because, okay? Now, Um, the truth of the matter is here they are estranged. God's people have become estranged. As always, the fault is not with God, but with his people choosing 
to separate themselves from him by their attitudes, which lead to their actions. Now we've got a long portion. And he says, because your hands have been defiled in blood, they're killing innocent people, the ones who do love God. Your fingers in iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue will mutter injustice. No one is calling injustice. No one is pleading truth. They trust in confusion to speak nothing, to conceive mischief, and to bear wickedness. Now, there's a whole bunch of things here. There's seven things going on, but I want to focus on this word, iniquity. In the biblical language, it means twisted. And, you know, once I learned that, I started examining my own heart more, and and especially in the days before I came to know Jesus Christ. And I think if we're honest, it's different for everybody. There's probably 500 ways our hearts can be twisted. But everybody has some portion of their heart that's twisted. In Hebrews, in the King James, it's called our besetting sin. That's what iniquity is. And then I want to focus on this word confusion. This is a word that was used in the very first verse after the creation. The second verse of scripture says it was confused without form and it was void. Two words. I will just speak the Hebrew because I think it has a certain sound to it that means something. Tohu wabohu. You know, they kind of rhyme and sound the same. This is tohu. Total confusion disorganized, nothing to it. It's as if creation has been undone in their hearts. And then, again, there's some beautiful metaphor. Poetry is not just taking out all the vocabulary available to a poet, but also giving us these beautiful metaphors that help us to understand, kind of like Jesus' parables. They hatch viper's eggs and weave a spider's web. He who eats their eggs will die, and the one being crushed, this is a strange image, will be hatched as a snake. So as God is crushing them in discipline, they transform themselves into a snake. Their webs will not be clothing, and they will not cover themselves in their works. Their works are rights of wickedness and deeds of violence in their hands. Let me elaborate on this metaphor and everything. Two words are used in the original for snakes, for poisonous snakes. I went to Google and I found there's well over a dozen species of poisonous snakes in the world. And then uh, we find also that Yahweh wants his people to see by three times using works that their feeble efforts at doing good works to hide their twisted hearts are as weak and invisible as a spider web in the middle of the day. You know, how often do we as human beings think that we can fix our own problems without God? I still have a message saved on my answering machine 
of somebody who walked away. I was trying to help him to know Jesus Christ. And he said, Pastor Gary, I can't do it your way. I've got to get myself right. And my heart is still broken over that, but not as much as God's heart. And then uh, I want to say one more thing. Uh, The word for violence here in all Semitic languages is Hamas. And you may recognize it as the name of a terrorist group operating in the world today. Continuing on, God speaks through Isaiah and says, their feet will run to evil and they will make haste to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are wickedness and havoc and destruction is in their highways. All throughout history, biblical times, Old and New Testament, you see highwaymen everywhere. But if you were to look, especially in the King James, the first half of this verse, the first line is a direct quote from the Proverbs of Solomon, where a father is telling his sons not to join in their lots with those seeking to waylay innocent travelers. That's what it's about in context. So the second half of the sentence, Isaiah, is prophetically led to apply it to their circumstances. When we get to the end of the first part, we'll see it. Innocent people are continuously being harassed and oppressed. And then it says, the way of peace they do not know. There is no justice in their tracks. They have made their paths perverse. And whoever is treading on them has not known peace. Well, perversion is here. And what is their greatest perversion or sin? They're not doing justice. And of course, Micah 5, 8 popped in, 6, 8, I'm sorry, popped into my mind. What does the Lord require? But to do justice, to love mercy and walk humbly with your God. So we now come to the second half. This is God's verdict. Now the people respond that that they hoped for light and salvation, but they are lying, transgressing people, speaking revolt against their God. Therefore, justice is far from us and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light. Behold, darkness for brightness and we walk in gloom. We grope the wall like the blind, like those with no eyes. We grope, we grope, we stumble at noon as those who were in twilight as the sun has almost worn off its effects for the day. And as those in full vigor, we are dead. Three words of progression. Confessing their lack of justice. They say their hope for light, it's become darkness. That's the result. Because of our sins, we're in darkness. And they have become blind at the brightest time of the day. And then finally, in full bodily vigor, They are spiritually dead. Think back to our group confession of faith. We read it 
in James earlier. James taught that our evil desires are the very first step on a path that leads to death. And we growl like bears and like doves. We moan intensely and we will look for justice and none for salvation and far from us. Now, the people compare themselves to suffering creatures. And if you remember, Paul wrote to the churches in Rome where he said all creation to this day is still groaning while waiting for the revelation of God's children. No hope of salvation. They conclude that salvation is far from them. Their twisted hearts prevent them from realizing and receiving the salvation that Yahweh declares in his opening sentence. So as they come to the end of their statement, they're going back to the beginning of what God said. And and people, this has been hard to take so far, but, but I hope we can experience the sadness of this situation and how it makes God sad. For our transgressions increase and our sins answer against us. For our transgressions are with us and we have known our iniquities to transgress and deceive. Three times that word. We deceive Yahweh. We move away from following our God to speak oppression and revolt. That's the 20th word. And to utter from the heart lying words. This word transgression in the later prophets, the prophets of the exile, is the strongest word that God uses against his people. It's as close to the unforgivable sin as we can come without actually committing it. They have left God. They admit they've left him. They're moving away from him and his ways. And then they conclude part one with five positive qualities. They say justice has been driven back. Righteousness stands far off because truth has stumbled in the street. Equity cannot enter. Truth is lacking. And then the bottom line of part one, and this is heavy, heavy. The one departing from evil becomes prey. So godly character is being blocked. They know they've blocked God's justice, righteousness, equity, and especially truth by mentioning it twice. And here's the sad truth. And it hasn't totally changed. Evil seeks to consume those who repent. The tragic consequence is that any remnant looking to turn back to God from evil to seek justice, it's being hunted down by the majority as if it was prey as if a lion or a bear were trying to consume God's sheep and they feel like David's not there. When evil abounds, 
justice seekers become prey. But that's not the last word. Part two, starting in the second half of verse 15. Finally in wrath, Yahweh comes in his spirit and power to save, to both save and repay evil. So the first part of this is longer, and we're told what Yahweh saw displeased him, and we come back to the very beginning. So he worked salvation, repaying evil with wrath. Word for word. Then Yahweh saw, and it was evil in his eyes, because no justice. And then he saw no man. And he was astonished that there was no intercessor. Some 150 years later, the same thing was said through Ezekiel. The evil hearts of the people have brought about evil deeds. And Yahweh is amazed that no one is standing up for the oppressed. People, let me just throw this in right now. It just came to me. If we know Jesus, we should be standing up for the oppressed. And if ever we see anybody being mistreated, let us pray for the courage to act right then and there. And then it says his own arm, Yahweh's arm, brought salvation and righteousness to him, and this righteousness upheld him. Here, people, I love this. This is grace in action. Grace in action. Salvation and righteousness both are God's gracious gift. His acts to people in order to establish his desired relationship with his people. Thank God it doesn't depend on us. He works salvation. He comes after his people. Why? Because he's the primary beneficiary. It's his will. It's his will. His gift worked in his people in order to free them from the darkness in their hearts. The bottom line of this passage is Yahweh himself worked salvation for his people trapped in darkness. And then he clothed himself in righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. You know, I must have read this passage 40 times and I finally realized as I studied it, Paul didn't get the spiritual armor of Ephesians 6 out of the clear blue sky. He was inspired to quote God's already given prophetic word through Isaiah when he commanded the Christians in Asia Minor to clothe themselves with God's full armor. And righteousness is the key here. To be righteous means to be perfectly straight. The cliche I remember is a straight arrow. God expresses his righteousness throughout his word, beginning to end. And his saving of people from themselves and out of darkness in spite of themselves to fulfill his covenant is the greatest expression 
of his righteousness. And that also was in our prayer of confession this morning. You see, Yahweh himself worked salvation for his people trapped in darkness. Continuing on, then he clothed himself in garments of vengeance for clothing, and he covered himself with zeal as a robe. According to their dealing, he will repay wrath to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies. And in the coastlands, that means all around the world, recompense he will repay. Two sides of God. Okay, we've heard the salvation. He has a jealous zeal. His zeal to act is motivated, motivated by his jealousy of love and grace to his people. But understand, there's two sides to the coin, two sides when God acts. Evil is repaid with wrath. We must recognize the wrath of God. He will repay in wrath his enemies, the evil they've done to his people. But it comes to a very fitting climax in our last verse. And we're told through Isaiah, then all will fear Yahweh and his glory. He comes in power driven by his spirit. Here's the Trinity in the Old Testament. And it says, and they will fear the name of Yahweh from the west and his glory from the rising sun. The universal fear of faith. People understand to fear the awesome covenant God is a prerequisite to faith in him. A faith that doesn't fear God is a very weak faith. Faith must have a powerful person as its object, and the most powerful person is the three in one God. And here is faith for fear, and we're told it will circle the globe from west to east, around and around and around the entire earth, Glory from the sun. You can look at Psalm 19. It's Yahweh who gives glory to the sun, which glory it reflects back to him. For he will come like a restricted river being driven by his spirit. Okay, This is a coming in power. I, I just meditated on what the lexicon said. And uh, I haven't really had the privilege much of being up high during the spring. But as a river is flowing and it's full, when it reaches a narrow spot, it has this tendency to overflow and flood everything around it. That is the picture here. And Jesus' second coming will be with power to judge those who refuse to turn to him in faith as the Savior, the Son of God. And all of this is driven by the Spirit of Yahweh. Let me just throw this in. I know it's getting late, and I wasn't going to say this, but I thought about it. You've heard that the last 27 chapters of Isaiah are New Testament truth. 
Did you also know they're broken into three groups of nine chapters, and each one ends with the very same last sentence? The first three are about the Father. The second three are about the Son, the suffering servant. But this is the second of the last nine chapters that are all about the Holy Spirit. You see, people didn't invent the Trinity. It's there. So it's it's the Holy Spirit. And today, the church of Jesus makes progress in the power of the Holy Spirit given after Jesus' first coming. I've given you something from Acts, Romans, and Thessalonians. So here's the application, people. After all this time, let us all take to heart Yahweh's declaration of his ability to act to save, both in his wrath against evil and in the power of his spirit to create fear leading to faith. And then he will save us from darkness, this present darkness in the world today. Yahweh himself saves his people from the darkness. Let's just sum up what Isaiah said. Yahweh can save, but his people are excessively evil. While hoping for salvation, they speak revolt. So Yahweh was displeased to the point he worked salvation, repaying evil with wrath. So all people could, could fear him as he comes in power. Driven by his spirit, this is the age we live in. Isaiah saw it all at once, but it was really the whole church age. Yahweh can save his people by his own work. Yahweh himself saves us from the darkness.